So, Bob, you've been a therapist for a long time. You've been a counselor for 20-some years now, right? Yes. And over the years, maybe even in the beginning of your career, you ran groups. Is that correct? Uh, yes, I have. Yeah, you've ran groups as a counselor. Yeah. And a patron wrote in, a couple of patrons actually have written in and asked us to talk about group psychotherapy, group counseling, something we've never talked about before. And I and I at first I thought like, well, I don't know if there's enough to talk about, but when I actually started thinking about what can be said about group counseling, there's actually a fair amount. It it in it's simultaneously a narrow topic and a vast topic. Because <laughs> in, in essence it's like saying something like, well, just talk about individual therapy or, you know, or couples therapy. It's 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 so vast. There's so many kinds of things that happen and approaches and experiences and it's just as very group that the the variability in group therapy is just as variable as as individual therapy uh maybe even more so to some extent so but you know i thought we could talk about it briefly talk about our experiences and uh what do you say yes let's do it this is the psychology in seattle podcast i'm your host dr kirk honda i'm a therapist and a professor who are you bob my name is Bob Gettle. I'm a friend of yours from graduate school 100 years ago and a counselor here in Seattle as well. That's right. Group psychotherapy, group counseling, group therapy. Patron David and patron Simon wrote in. Patron David says, I am a licensed professional counselor here in Colorado. I recently landed myself a new job in which I will be running an intensive outpatient therapy group. I've done a lot of work in my previous job working with adolescents, which was always very challenging. It seems you haven't done any episodes that address the wide world of group psychotherapy. That would be awesome if you could discuss your experience with this. Patron Simon, I believe in Australia, wrote in and said, I work as a musician and a vocal coach, and I love the brightness to your singing. <laughs> Apparently, you know, I sometimes sing on the podcast. <laughs> Uh, Patron Simon says the two main re the two main issues with male voices is either being too either having too much bottom end or or being too breathy. And he asks, I'd be interested if you've done any training before. No, I, well, I took a year of vocal jazz in high school, and my teacher we called her Dragon Lady because she was so uh, harsh, and she was a very good uh, vocal jazz teacher but she was also ex extremely perfectionistic and she would yell at me all the time about my technique. Um, that I, I come from a, a musical family. There's a lot of uh, people who like to sing. I mean, not a lot of musicians in my family, but a lot of people who like to sing. And I grew up in church and we sang all the time. Learning about you left and right here, church. You didn't know I grew up no? in church. Yeah. I mean, as typical to many Americans in the seventies, we went to church a lot, and uh, it was just a non-denominational, what we call non-denominational church yeah. in in Issaquah. It, it's since become evangelical in a lot of ways, but I remember it being very hippie, you know, very seventies, lots of bell bottoms and and lots of lots of acoustic guitars and lots of singing. And I remember being seven years old and listening to people harmonize in church and mm -hmm. going like, oh, I kind of like that, and like trying to do it themselves and then looking at the notes on this page and trying to figure out what it all kind of meant. Right. And uh, and so 
singing and you know when you're a kid maybe in the 70s too there's just a lot of singing kindergarten first grade there you know let's get up and sing a song and i remember we had a woman uh, actually one of my uh classmates mom was a like a folk singer and she would come to class and we would sing puff the magic dragon and uh, oh, oh, oh good choice yeah and uh you know, it was a very folksy, singy kind of time. I don't know for adults, but for six-year-olds, it was. And so, I uh, I think that's where it comes from to some extent. I don't know, but anyway, um, uh, Patron Simon continues to say, "I wanted to see if you could do an episode on group therapy." Okay, so overall, group therapy. Uh, what can we say? As I was saying before, it's just as vast as any other form of therapy. It. A lot of times when people talk about the different modalities of therapy, it's it's one of the four modalities we have. Well, what are the different four? Oh, you're putting me on the spot again. I would say psychoeducational. Well, no, like different um, uh, the categories regarding how many people are in the room, I guess. Like that basic. You know what I mean? So we're saying that. Like individual, uh, yeah. group, group, family, couples. Right. Yeah. So you got individual, couple, family, group. And so a lot of times that's what people categorize the different main modality, regardless oh, of sure. theoretical or re- and regardless yeah. of whether it's psychoed or not. It's like, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. And so uh, now for some reason, I don't know about you, Bob, but I have encountered that group therapy isn't used very often or maybe not as often as I would think or hope. Is that your experience? Yeah, it is. I I think in some ways it's fallen out of vogue, Mm. not necessarily for good reasons. Um, That's what my other friend Rebecca was saying. She's been on the podcast. She said that she said that group therapy was big in the past and it seems to be like less frequent now, which I didn't really pick up on, but you've picked up on that. Well, what I've noticed is, it's hard to find a group. Yeah. You know, and, and they're often themed. Yeah. Um, like what? Like a colleague of mine does a men's group. Yeah. And it's specific to men who have trouble with anger. But uh, an area where group therapy thrives, I think, is uh, chemical dependency. Right. Yeah. Um, but why would people not... So why is it hard to uh, find a group? Is that what you said? Hard to find one? Yeah. I, I think they're just um, not that many. In general, yeah. Why though? Here. Like why? I think because people don't have training in it, and it's fallen out of vogue. And uh, we're interested it's not in, in style. It's not in style. What's in style now is you know empirically validated treatment is like the big deal. But isn't group therapy empirically validated? I don't know. I would assume. I can't imagine it wouldn't be useful, but I don't know any any research. But yeah. that's not really my thing. Yeah. I think it's also if I might offer some other factors. I think it's scarier to people. Oh, yeah. Clients and therapists. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, I think it's logistically hard to pull off because you have to, you know, when you're scheduling with one person, you just have to match up two people's schedules. When you're scheduling with 10 people, everyone's schedule has to match up. And, And that's not, you know, so easy. Also, insurance companies from what I understand, for whatever reason, have sporadic uh, policies or differing policies regarding reimbursement for group therapy. Right. Meaning that 
I think some medical insurance don't don't reimburse at all for just like a general group therapy. Yeah. Um, you know, so someone comes in, they have an adjustment disorder, and they go to individual therapy, totally fine. Right. They go to group therapy, and from what I understand, yeah. uh, medical insurance might not reimburse for that. Yeah. yeah. We've run into that. Oh, you have? Yeah. In your own groups? Yeah. Because you have a DBT group. Yeah, which is different from, when I think group therapy, I think generally process group. Yeah. And DBT is definitely a class. Right. With a curriculum and a format of running that does not allow for uh, members in the class to process their experience with one another, which in my opinion is the best thing about group therapy. Yeah. We just don't do that though. Yeah. For why? Why? reasons I can talk. Oh, all right. I'll talk about it now. Yeah. Because um, the folks that we're working with tend to have uh, poor emotion regulation skills. Yeah. And um, so to allow process is to invite the possibility of the thing um, being destroyed from within, if it were, if that's a way to put it. Yeah. Um, and then the other reason is because um, uh, there's a specific curriculum to be taught. So it's more like taking a class, homework and the whole yeah. bit. Meaning that if you allowed time or space yeah. for emotional yeah. talk and interchange between people, it would pr- most likely eclipse the primary purpose of the DBT group, yeah. which is to work through different exercises yeah. and skill building and that right. kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 Or might even negate the ability to do that because they're so overwhelmed or preoccupied with, you know, yeah. the emotional aspects of what's happening in the room that they wouldn't be able to concentrate on an exercise right. or something. And it's not that I don't think that that would be valuable. I think one of the things that's valuable in group is conflict. Right. And this just, you could not do both. In this, with this population. With this population, you could not have a, I think it'd be hard with any to have a curriculum because generally when people come to therapy, they talk about what they want to talk about. Yeah. Even in group therapy, um, there often isn't a specific topic. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of whatever comes into the room. And the minute that happens is, is the minute it's very hard even for counselors to stick to a curriculum, which is why I never teach DBT skills one-on-one unless I absolutely, absolutely have to. Because... Um, it's hard to stick to a curriculum. Counselors and clients often don't want to do that. Right. Yeah. Right. So you're saying and Rebecca saying and I am going along with is that for whatever reason, group therapy, group counseling isn't around very much, particularly lately, which which really concerns me because, and we'll get into it more later, but group counseling has there's so many wonderful things about it and i don't i just it disheartens me when i think about a lot of the things going on in our society and people from around the world will email me and say kirk you have no idea how bad it is in our country (laughs) like you're complaining about seattle's state of mental health like let me tell you about my country and so i acknowledge that and worry more about you guys than us, but I'm still worried about us. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of like when I talk about emotionality and uh, oppressive gender ising socialization of people, Uh, men are socialized to not have emotion, but at the same time, women are also socialized not to have emotion. (laughs) They're just less so. So I'm worried about everyone with regards to that. 
men in particular. I'm worried about everyone regarding the state of mental health care, uh, less so about Seattleites than maybe anyone ever in history, you know, for that matter. Mm. But, but I'm still worried about it because this detail, other kinds of details come out and you just think like, what are we doing? What's wrong with us? Mm-hmm. Why, why is our system the way it is? Why is our society so stupid? Why, why is there still stigma about this stupid thing that, oh. yeah, uh, why are we not paying attention a little bit of funding uh, rerouted from guns and bombs could could literally save people's lives and and maybe break the chain of trauma that is passed down from generation mm-hmm. to generation and we just don't do it we're just like eh you know i don't know it's not my problem and it's like uh how often do you drink alcohol to cope with your emotions how often are you fighting with your spouse? It is your problem. You know, I don't know a single human being who isn't suffering in some way that could have been alleviated by a, a possible intervention, particularly with their own parents when they were growing up. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just the, the, the vision in my head of the you know, semi-utopia psychologically, if we could manage it, you know, like... Early intervention, early help with attachment, early help with parenting, early help with trauma recovery, early help with uh, health and and fitness, and it's not hard. And we're doing things; people are doing things. But uh, uh, it, when I think about the fact that there's not a lot of group and it, a group you know, counseling, and it's actually on the decline, it's just another data point of depression for me. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. So there are many kind, kinds of groups, and, and we've already sort of touched on one issue, which is some people consider some things to be called, quote-unquote, group therapy or group counseling, and some don't. You're calling your DBT group, you're saying it's not group counseling, is that correct? Yeah, I've gone many rounds inside about whether or not to call it group counseling, and for some theoretic and practical reasons, I've decided it's not group therapy. It's definitely a class. Right. What was the debate in your mind? Well, it's a group, right? And it's convenient to think of when you're getting people together for a mental health reason to call it group, yeah. right? So I used to just call it DBT skills group, right? And I yeah. think that's actually the vernacular in the DBT world. They call it skills group. Yeah. And I switched to class. And the reason for that had to do with actually had to do with medical insurance. Back when I was younger, I was on several insurance panels. And once you're on a panel, you are bound by the contract that you have set up with the insurance company. Yeah. And what they will pay for group therapy is usually based on a 75-minute session with one therapist. And I do two and a half hour groups with two counselors. So the generally the reimbursement rate and it's still about the same is about 30 or 35 dollars a session. So let's break that down. So 30 bucks for two therapists over basically 3 hours. Yeah. So that's ten dollars revenue, uh, split twice. So five dollars revenue, you know, that you have to pay taxes and you know expenses per therapist per client, and you might have ten people, eight usually. So eight, yeah. So forty dollars an hour, yeah, is is uh, a you know one fourth the normal. Uh, revenue we get right. when we're when we're working. Right um, now, some people out there would be like forty bucks an hour. You know that's a lot, but 
the issue is is you got loans, you've got rent, you've got malpractice, and it start, starts whittling down pretty quickly to a um, much lower actual, you know, this you know spendable cash at the end of the day, right? Yeah, and some of that has to do with you know what am I willing to earn? Like we are actually in the business. I don't think of myself as charging a fee. What I think of myself as doing is what do I need to make so that I don't have to do something else for a living? Yeah, and DBT class is hard. Yeah, and so it, I, first off, I couldn't hire somebody that were willing to make that little bit. Yeah, so. So since I was contracted with insurance companies, if I call it group therapy, I'm bound to the rate that they charge. So I switched and I started calling it a class. I actually think calling it a class is more accurate, but I did it really for reasons to to get me out of being bound by that contract. Now, since it doesn't matter so much because I'm not on any insurance panels, so I could go back to calling it group. Mm -hmm. I actually found there is a billing code for educational class related to therapeutic goals CPT code Z0177. Some of the insurance companies will honor it and some of them won't. And I pretty much leave that to my students. Yeah. They can submit those CPT codes for reimbursement for for themselves, but they're still responsible for paying you. And they can get paid for out of network because you're not a. a, a, uh... Why did you drop? Were you Primera paneled? At one point, yeah. Why did you drop that one? Same reason. I didn't want to except the rate that they were willing to offer. You just wanted to charge your full rate. Yeah. 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 As, I mean, side note, people ask me about this all the time. Yeah. It, when you're starting out in your career, it is usually wise to become paneled. Yeah. Because you, one, get routed clients by the medical insurance. You know, they'll say, well, here are, here are five contractor providers that you are guaranteed to only have to pay $20 copay because we've contracted with those people in in your area. And so you'll just get, you know, a bunch of clients just from that. And or a client comes to you and they're like, "Well, boy, 150 bu- bucks an hour, that's going to be tough." Yeah. Um, oh, you're paneled with with Primera, which means I only need to pay 20 bucks an hour. Um great. I'll, I'll see you weekly for 5 years, you know, instead of uh, probably could only afford once a month with this, you know. Um, the the disbenefit, the disadvantage to therapists is that almost all the time our rate is much higher than the rate that the insurance company will pay us. Um, and so as demand goes up for our services, as we gain more experience and word of mouth and blah, 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 we no longer depend on medical insurance to provide us with clients um, to route clients to us or to keep clients in our practice. And so we can drop uh, uh, certain contracts and, you know, that means some clients won't come to us, but, uh, it, but it also means that we can, um, you know, we get paid more <laughs> yeah. and, and maybe give back to the community some other way through pro bono or something. Um, Are you on any insurance panels? Mm-hmm. I, I'm on Premiera and, and Regents. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I I hardly have. If I had a bunch of Regents clients, I'd probably drop it because Regents has recently yeah. reduced their rates. Reduced them? Yeah. Oh man. Regents and Premiera used to be comparable. Yeah. This is Blue Cross Blue Shield in Washington, but they and they were you know probably eighty percent my my rate. Yeah. Uh, particularly back in the day, they were probably more than my rate actually. 
but Regents has gone down to uh, sixty to seventy percent of of my rate. Wow. Yeah. Um, which is still not bad. Uh, you know, Cigna and Aetna and these other outfits pay like $25 yeah. or something. And it's just yeah. like, come on. Um, and so I, I, it doesn't, you know, I, I, I'm not worried about it too much. And, and I, I think, you know, Premier is fine. You mm-hmm. know, it's, it's, you know, it still reimburses quite a bit. They were the last one I dropped. Yeah. 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 Um, so having said all that, it's ethical practice for all of us to, uh, do what we can to provide services to people who don't have insurance or can't afford. And, uh, you know, and I do that. Do you do any of that? I don't want to put you on the spot. No, but. not at all. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, I do. I reserve two slots in my practice for folks. Uh, I don't do a sliding fee scale cause have you ever done a podcast on sliding fee scale? No. It wouldn't necessarily be a long one, but it might be a good one. Yeah. There are um, some problems with doing sliding fee scale. If you are paneled by insurance companies, they get very cranky if they find out that that's what you do. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, I don't do a sliding fee scale. I do a reduced fee. It's somewhat negotiable for two clients at a time um, for, uh, you know, for a lower rate. Right. Yeah. So... You know, and there's other things that people do, like they'll volunteer or they'll work a day at a mental health agency for, you know, minimum wage or something. And um, so it's it's the, you know, there's not a lot of other industries where people feel guilty for making money, uh, except for our industry, <laughs> you know? I, I don't feel that way anymore. What do you mean? I don't feel guilty. Good. I'm glad you don't, but Thanks. I'm just saying like whenever I talk about this, I either, I, I'm not, I don't know where these, you know, topics are coming from. Yeah. I'm either addressing uh, worries of, of ridicule or judgment from people, or I'm actually reacting from some internal shame or something, but yeah. other industries have no worries about, you know, I, I have a hard time believing that heart surgeons making millions of dollars a year are like, um, concerned about it. Well, maybe they are. I don't know. It's I, funny. Should, I shouldn't say that. But well, but people generally, um, you know, you see this with professional athletes and salary. Yeah, you know, they make these enormous salaries compared to you know pretty much everybody else. Yeah, and one player can find themselves getting finding him or herself getting very upset about what a comparable player is making if it's significantly more yeah. and feel as though they're not being treated fairly and they're just swimming in a deeper pool yeah but humans are probably going to adapt to the pool that they swim in and that might be a a pool where you know you're talking about 5 or 10 million dollars or for folks like us you know what's the range of well, you you're a side E now, so your your rates probably shifted. No, I, I didn't raise my rates as a result of my doctorate. Okay, but um, folks that have a doctorate, uh, medical. I'm still a licensed marriage and family therapist, so yeah. So it's the same. It's the same. Yeah, but so if I if I got my psychology license, it my rate would go up. Right. Um. So. So and they swim in that pool. Yeah. And I swim in the you know licensed counselor pool. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's all relative, right? And I it's just funny how like and I don't know. It it is a maybe we should talk about it at some point in terms of fees and sliding fee scales and stuff because 
it's a concern to most therapists, particularly beginning. I find that yeah. beginning therapists are socialized to believe that their service yeah. is worth nothing. It's a mistake, folks. Don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody's going to do it. Yeah. And that it's anti-society or right. not a social justice uh, thing to um, want to earn a living right. from a highly professional you know, endeavor. Right. Um, and so anyway. Uh, okay. We should do. We should definitely talk about it. Yeah. 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 We should. And I, I talk about it with people all the time. Yeah. Um, so, like I said, there's lots of different kinds of groups and some groups that would probably not like even being considered themselves to be counseling groups or therapy groups. Um, there's no uh, there's no official – there's no reason the, – the, the reasons why there would be a problem with categorization are – uh, marketing and just the general way you consider things and also what you're talking about, which is like there are implications regarding insurance yeah. and reimbursement and also ethical codes and, and whatnot. You know, if someone comes for a parenting class and you don't even know any of the, any of the quote-unquote students, you don't have a disclosure statement. You don't have confidentiality agreements. You don't, you know, there's no, even though you're a therapist, you're teaching this class on parenting, the, it's a different setting and there's a different set of ethics and laws that apply to it. Along those lines in your DBT group, do yeah. you have disclosures and, and oh. confidentiality? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We talk about it very specifically. I, you know, it's been so long. I don't remember developing these, this paperwork. And at one point, we hired a lawyer to help us with it, and he had some interesting things to say about how we charge. <laughs> uh, we can talk about it another time. Um, yeah, so anyways, yes, I do all this up front. I have a, all my students are required to be in individual counseling. We have a, an agreement that we ask their individual counselor to sign, and it's really about the division of labor, what we do versus what um, they do and what the student does. Yeah, okay. And the reason for that is because a lot of people who are not DBT trained who have uh, clients in my class expect that um, I'm going to be responsible for handling clinical emergencies and crises because that's part of the curriculum. Right. Uh, those skills to manage that stuff is part of the curriculum. And I really am not in the business of, yeah. I think that's actually an individual therapist's job to, you know, whatever it is people decide to do with their client is what they decide to do. But I really think that's outside the purview of what I do, which is really, I just teach these skills. Right. Right. So another DBT group could do it differently, they just could. depending on what they want to do. Yeah. And so calling it a class and not a, yeah. gr and not group counseling right. helps to define to everyone, client and other clinicians included, look, this is a skills class. Yeah. And we're also, because we're therapists and clinicians, and this is a, a, a so you're kind of riding the line in some it, ways. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's not, I, I guess you're, you're covering your bases by having disclosures and releases and treating them under the umbrella of, of the ethics and law regarding clients. Yeah. But you're also very clear as to what the treatment will involve and what you're responsible for. Yeah. Um, which I think is, you know, how, what did the lawyer think that was cool um the lawyer th usually people that do we do charge fee for service yeah and we do not we charge like kind of like if you're taking a college class you you charge like four tuition 
for the for ten weeks or something. Yeah, we, for about two months. That's right. We, and we have six of these two month modules, and so students pay the tuition up front for each module. Um, and the lawyer had a problem with that. Yeah, he's like, "You guys charge in a really weird way. Most people in your profession do fee for service, and so what but I want you to isn't that a fee for a service that you know what I mean? It is." Uh, over time, but most people charge a fee at the time of delivery of the service as opposed to for services that are coming up in the future, say, yeah. you know, in the following weeks or months. Right. So he said, it's weird. Um, so what, what we want you to, what I want you to do, what I recommend is that you have a separate financial agreement that outlines how you charge and why you charge in this way. Okay. But yeah, I, I guess, you know, he's the lawyer. So yeah, but there are, plenty of other services in our field that are along those lines. You, you know, you could pay for a, a weekend retreat right. in couples therapy. Yeah. And you don't charge per hour on no. that one. You, you, you pay for the week prior, prior to the weekend. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, and I say that's a group service because most yeah. of the time those are in couple groups, many of, couples. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so interesting. Okay. So the distinction needs to be, made for a lot of these reasons and there's also just philosophical reasons but before going into the different groups let's take a break what do you say bob sure okay we're back if you haven't become a patron of the podcast please do so by going to patreon.com that's patreon.com it's always wonderful to get that little email notification saying that another person has signed up as a patron so uh, if you want to give me that endorphin rush do so now by going to your computer and signing up with patreon.com. Also, if you upload a picture of yourself, that helps because uh, it's there's all these names of all these people and it's so much easier for me to remember you if I have, you know, uh, your mug to look at. So, and some people are uploading like pictures of their dogs and stuff, which is great if that's what you want to do. And if you want to remain anonymous by all means, but yeah, I I'd love to see your mug, you know what I mean? It just you know what my mug looks like in all likelihood and um you know let's be mutual <laughs> okay different types of of groups these are my categorizations by the way okay uh i have w the first one which is what you were calling earlier process groups mm -hmm. I, I sort of consider these to be the classic psychotherapy groups uh they're long term you're expected and probably go there to be very vulnerable these are sometimes psychoanalytic, psychodynamic, hum humanistic-oriented uh, groups. You get to know each other really well. You might be in the group for your entire life. You know, you might be in the group for dozens of years. Uh, I, a colleague of mine has a men's group um, similar to your colleague, and the men in that group have been in it for, you know, stints of years. And then they might drop out for a year or two and come back. I actually went through a time when I was, I was shopping around for that kind of thing. Because imagine going to a group once a week with five other, you know, people like you, and then you have a therapist. And usually these process group therapists are extremely humanistic and caring and intense and calm and uh they're usually like the best people on the planet you know your carl rogers your you know your people like that <laughs> and when 
uh, there was a time when I was shopping around because I, I just I wanted to do that. It just sounded really amazing. As a client or a therapist? As a client. As a client, yeah. And found it was hard to find one. Mm-hmm. They can also be kind of expensive. Like good groups will charge a lot, you know, like a hundred bucks per or something. Really? Yeah, something like that. Or I, I don't remember the yeah, I, yeah. I I can't remember the barriers. I just remember thinking like I just remember running into a bunch of barriers and being like, uh, I'll, maybe I'll come back to this. Maybe I should do it again. But anyway, um, so these are very intense, uh, very interactive between the members. The therapist typically encourages transference and uh, between members and encourages people to talk about those honestly, encourages people to work this out. There can be ongoing tension between members that you utilize as a therapeutic uh, tool to help people grow. You have an issue with people who are aggressive and assertive, just like your father was. Well, the aggressive bully in the group, you're going to have a lot of interactions or reactivity to. The therapist will notice that and will enhance the observation of it or sort of, you know, let's look at this and allow space to talk about it honestly and facilitate conversations with everyone, you know, both people and other observers watching and and you don't try to stomp on it. You don't give solutions. You don't say like, well, you should not treat people like, you know, you're just like, you know, where's that coming from? Let's talk about it. You know, how do you feel about that? And th- these kinds of therapists are very good and have a philosophy around exploration and around valuing immediacy and in the moment stuff and, um, and uh, have a very long-term outlook on how things are going to go. Have you, have you ever experienced groups like this, Bob? As a participant? Yeah. Yeah. How, how, how was that? Um, harder than individual counseling, far more vulnerable, and uh, terrific. What, why, what was terrific about it? Well, for me, um, an experience of vulnerability in a place where I'm safe is rare. And so uh, that was my experience of the two times I was in. Did the therapist create safety? Yeah, well, one of them was grad school. You know, So you take group therapy as a, uh, as a class, class, and you're required to participate at times as a leader and at times as a participant. Yeah. And I'll never forget my experience of that. Who was your instructor? Sandy Wood. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, uh, that was very powerful and meaningful to me. Uh, there were one particular uh, day of that was very powerful and meaningful to me. And Wow. Um, Brian Sullivan, do you remember him? I think I do. Yeah. Yeah. He was um, just what I needed. Okay. That day. And he was a participant, not not one of the leaders that particular day. Remind, remind me, Brian Sullivan? Uh, older guy, lots of health troubles, um, second career. Okay. So he was going to school with us. Yeah. One of the few men. Yeah. So in grad school, uh, it's required for, for clinical mental health counselors, such as yourself, Bob, to take, to take group therapy. Oh, you didn't? No, I didn't take oh, group therapy. Wow. I took it in gra- in my doctorate. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. But I've always known in my early career as an intern, 
the mo- most of my group, which we'll get into in a second, but most of my group experience happened in my early career because mm-hmm. at agencies, agencies are much more set up to be able to uh, start groups because yes. they have hundreds of clients who are coming in. And so all it takes is one clinician or a clinical supervisor to say, okay, 20 therapists, give me all the clients that you think will be good for this group. And then you get like 20 files and then you say, okay, we're going to reach out to those people or you reach out to these people and da, da, da. And, um, and you can also go to schools and say like, we'll start a group in your school as a, as an organization. And, uh, you know, sometimes that'll facilitate it. So all, most of my group experience happened back then. But anyway, the point is, is that you're talking about, uh, a particular day of graduate school in which you were taking group counseling class and you were a participant while yeah. another student was the therapist and it was uh, particularly moving to you. That's interesting. Yeah. Right. So this is what we call process groups or I might call them classic psychotherapy groups. The, the next group that I've categorized is support groups. Um, these are similar to classic groups, but they're less focused on personal issues. The therapist is there mainly to facilitate. Some people might not even consider these to be group counseling. Uh, I participated a few years ago in a parenting support group. You know, Five couples would come to this group, and they would uh, get support and talk about the perils of parenting their difficult teenagers. Uh, I've also been involved in Changes, which is a, it's sort of like AA for parents. It, it comes from Tough Love. I actually did an early episode on Changes uh, nine years ago, <laughs> and uh, uh, maybe I should do it again, but it's, um, there's no therapist in those Changes groups, but I've been a part of them. Anyway, the point is, is that there's another group, what we might call support groups. Most support groups are not counseling groups. You're not, you're not having files. You're not having disclosures. You're not having confidentiality. Uh, and again, some of them don't even have therapists in them. Yeah, peer-led. Yeah. There's, well, AA is, of course, the classic example. Right. Exactly. Uh, Seattle has a fabulous OCD support group. Just terrific. Right. And it's, they, they occasionally have uh, guest therapists. In fact, they're having a really fabulous one today, uh, a guest uh, therapist coming to talk. Um, but generally peer run and the people that run it are really top notch. They're really fabulous. Right. So these groups, uh, are typically not seen as group counseling, but some are, some are legit counseling groups in which you are treating the participants as clients legally and ethically. And so there's that. Um, there's also experiential groups. These are, again, similar to the process groups, but I think they're worth delineating. They come from a tradition in the 60s and 70s regarding humanistic psychotherapy techniques, primal screaming, Mm -hmm. (laughs) improv Mm -hmm. uh, comes to mind, drama therapy, art, all the creative arts therapies, dance movement, music therapy. These are all uh, experiential groups. People, uh, regardless of whether or not creative arts are used or not, there's they can be one-time shots sometimes. Like you go and everyone stares into each other's eyes and says the first thing that comes to their, to their mind. You know, I, we, I joke about it, but it can actually be pretty amazing. But it 
tends it can be a little woo woo at times and a little silly, but 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 you know, imagine every month you go to this group and you you don't you just sort of emote randomly and it's in a safe place and you get some stuff off your chest and you have some real experiences and uh so there's that land do you know landmark forum i know the name i actually don't know what it is we did an episode about it recently it comes from est do you remember est Uh, yeah i remember it i just don't know what it is it's um these things, in a nutshell, could be considered experiential. They don't have therapists in them. They're, mm-hmm. they're more like seminars. But the experiences in these kinds of uh, uh, environments or venues can be what I would consider to be experiential, therapy-based. So, okay, the fourth group that I'll talk about are psychiatric groups. These are things that happen in hospitals they're sometimes mandatory um, or sometimes you get points for going, you know, they're often very simple coping. Uh, they're, they, they usually don't try to go into the process stuff. They might somewhat, they might go into support, but really it's about how to reduce dangerousness, how to be functional, how to stay on your meds, how to understand your disorder, how to get, you know, like very uh, rudimentary but very critical skills and and um, and discussions around that. It can become a little bit more advanced, like in the case of any disorders or something, there could be more specific talk around how to, uh, you know, um, improve on your symptoms regarding eating disorders and, you know, schizophrenia and these kinds of things. Have you ever been involved in a group like that before, Bob? Yeah. Well, when I was uh, right out of college, I worked at a psychiatric hospital. Yeah. Uh, I worked in the, uh, on the children's unit, kids 4 to 13, really little people. And those were back in the days when people would come to the hospital for a month. So uh, a lot of the program there was group-related, not so much with the kids because, you know, the kids is mostly behavioral treatments. But the, they had uh, two teen units and two adult units, um, one just straight psychiatric troubles and the other one dual diagnosis, so psychiatric troubles plus you know addiction of some kind or other. And they would do um, both kinds of like concrete sort of skill class. They'd also, um, the uh, dual diagnosis units would have, you know, uh, 12-step meetings on the unit. And um, I think they did some processing yeah. The, the trouble with it, with doing anything more than um, doing anything in in the neighborhood of process groups, is your population is changing so so quickly that it's very difficult for people to uh, form relationships. And I think that right. forming relationships is probably the best thing there is about process groups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the reasons that you already described. Right. It's hard to have a sense of safety when every week it's there's a a new guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, Right, so those, that's just what that's what I would call psychiatric groups, yeah. and they can vary quite a bit, but they're they don't feel the same as support groups or process groups to right. me. They, I think they deserve their own category. Another category are what I'm calling psychoeducational groups. This is like your DBT group. Right. I'm guessing you'd put that in there. I would. Some people call them wellness groups mm-hmm. or skill building groups. Anger management groups would be in this category. Parenting skills. 
Even some chemical dependency groups might be included in this. Basically, the goal, and some people wouldn't even call these you know, group therapy, but a lot of therapists, such as Bob, actually will lead these psychoed groups. And the, the difference is, is that you're definitely not interested in uh, having the, uh, um, the members interact with each other emotionally and you're not interested in having them transfer with each other, and you're not interested in asking personal questions that will uh, necessitate long conversations around things. Um, it doesn't mean that you don't ask. It, you know, with, with in a parenting psychoed group, you might say like, well, you know, was is this similar to what happened when you were growing up? You know, what kind of parenting did you experience? But if it starts to go down like, ooh, this is going to take a half an hour of exploration, you know, the psychoed group typically would say, well, maybe you should talk with your individual therapist about this, and then, you know, let's, let's continue with the class. Um, another group that you sort of mentioned earlier as being part of a support group are Al-Anon, AA, all mm-hmm. these other groups. So we might consider them support groups, but I'm breaking them into their own category of uh, 12-step group kind of thing. Uh, they're, they're such a prominent thing that I think they deserve. Now, these are definitely not group counseling. No one in our profession would call this group counseling. There's not a therapist in the room, and if they are, they're a participant. Uh, they're, they're definitely peer-led, and the particularly with 12-step models, there's a strict adherence to a rule that during these 12-step meetings, no one actually steps forward as a uh, lead helper or something. And if anyone ever does, they're quickly told to stop doing that. It, it's a sharing opportunity. It's a support opportunity. It's not a treatment opportunity. Um, it's uh, any discovery that is made in these groups is supposed to be made by yourself in with other people's support. But you're, it's not supposed to be like a, an environment where someone stands up and says, you're an alcoholic. You need to stop drinking. Like that's just not... Uh, and the culture in these groups is so strong that the rules don't even have to be stated that you just sort of absorb them. You realize like, oh, like no one judges anyone openly here <laughs> and, yeah. and no, but no one says anything, you know, people share and you get compassion from people around you, but it just sort of ends there. Like there's no solutions that people, so anyway, crosstalk, tw- they call it. Yeah. No crosstalk. No crosstalk. So 12 step groups. Now, after and before groups, there might be whatever, you know, between people. But And then you have your sponsor, which can feel like a therapist, but that's a whole other thing. And then what I might have as the final category is a combination, you know. For instance, I was involved in a DV perpetrator group as a therapist, <laughs> and that had a lot of different kinds of things. It had very psychoed elements to it, but it also had a very process oriented stuff and, and a lot of support stuff. So some groups might not fit easily into these categories. I didn't know you did that. Yeah. Early on, which, you know, we can talk about in a second when I start talking about my experiences, but the, um, issues, uh, what, what do you think are the issues that, you know, if, if someone's about to head into a, as a clinician for the first time, a group counseling, you know, a, a proper process oriented kind of situation or, you know, so, or, you know, one of the classic kind of group therapy situations, what are some considerations they should consider before doing it? Privacy, what how do you, you want to handle matters of confidentiality, 
commitment. What do you mean privacy? Like, like telling people don't what, say what's said here stays here, kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, like that has to be explicit and upfront. Otherwise, people either won't feel safe to share, or you run a legal and ethical risk if you're not explicit about that upfront. So you could get sued yeah. if a client is made to feel as though it's not a big deal and then they go out and tell people right. they're revealing patient health information. Right. Now, of course, they can do that if they want to, but yeah. it's your responsibility to do what you can yeah. to make sure that people don't do that. Right. Uh, what other considerations? Commitment. What do you I mean? think if you're going to do a process group, you have to have a minimum length of commitment for starting members. Otherwise, again, people aren't going to develop uh, the culture in the class that will allow for the kind of exploration that makes the thing valuable. How do you do that? I mean, you, you say, like, look, if you're, I'm not going to let you come unless you say you're Six month commi- commitment or a year. But what if someone a weekend's like, fuck this shit, I'm out of here? It could happen. Yeah. I think we have a commitment in the skills class for a year. So you start sight unseen with the idea that you've committed to coming for a year and you've never been there before. Yeah. So it's a blind commitment. So that's why people have a chance to kind of talk it through beforehand, get a sense of who I am as a teacher. And I think good process groups are probably going to do something similar. They're going to do a good orientation up front so that a person can make a a good decision for her or himself. But basically, if I'm a group therapist, I've got to have people there that are committed to coming. If they, if they're spotty, it doesn't work. Yeah. So if you pay on two month bases, yeah, I do. Yeah. uh, So, Presumably, if someone came and dropped out two weeks later, they'd be out that eight-week fee. They would indeed. But there would be no other consequence. No. I mean, what are you going to do? People are yeah. free to do that. But I actually assess commitment up front. Uh, and you I think can kind of tell? I ask. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I ask for commitment, uh, and I ask, and I talk about anything that might get in the way. And occasionally, people do drop out. Like, I'm, the person I think of often is the one whose husband got transferred to New Jersey for work. Yeah. Of course, she left. Yeah. You know, what are you going to do? Yeah. And that sort of thing happens. And a process group, I think, is going to actually process the end, right? It won't be precipitous, hopefully. And uh, members will have a chance to talk about their experience of the person's presence and also their absence. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I totally agree. Um, it's interesting that you do that. Uh, I would imagine that a lot of people who come in to, for a DBT referral, I mean, not a lot, but like a percentage, are saying things like, well, my mom is making me come here, and uh, you know, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure I don't want to be here anyway. Yeah. And so you screen those people out. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I mean, I think your life is probably a lot happier that way. <laughs> yeah. Things go better in general, right? Yeah. Hey, one kind of group we didn't mention, consultation group. What do you mean? A professional consultation group among therapists. Yeah. That is definitely a group. And there are certainly the usual dynamics that come up when you get a people in a room together. Sure. Come up. I'm thinking about my uh, both positive and negative experiences on consultation yeah. groups. And um, yeah, that stuff happens and it's... I think just because folks are professionals does not mean that they are that that at, when they get together in a say a consultation group they're they're immune to the things that come up in process. God no. And these are not called group therapy. No. They're consultation groups. Yeah. But you get a group of therapists together and you know shit's going to happen. Yeah. 
Um, other issues besides the ones you identified, Bob, uh, that I would consider people consider are realize that group therapy is terrifying. Oh, yeah. It is extremely chaotic. Some of the worst and best experiences of my professional career have been in group therapy. Um, you can't just sit back and listen. There, you know, I actually I tell this to novice therapists all the time, particularly people as they enter uh, their first, you know, internship. They they just look at me like they're you know they're just terrified. They don't, you know because their head is swimming in all this theory. And I remember sure. being this way too. Oh, sure. And I remember being like, okay, what? Do, but what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Well, what I tell people is, do you know how to listen and nod your head? <laughs> And they they and they and they'll they'll listen to me and nod their head as I say that. I bet like, good. You just demonstrated it. That's all you got to do. That's all you got. There's nothing else. Ninety five percent of therapy is that anyway. So the rest of it, of all that other theoretical bullshit, is is tiny. You know, in compared to that. So just listen, listen well, nod your head, and occasionally reflect back what you hear. You know. So I'm hearing you say, duh, duh, duh. Um, if you can do that, you know, that's great. In group therapy, you can't do that. You can't have 12 randos with psychiatric issues sitting in a room together and you just sit back and freaking listen and mm-hmm. nod your head. Like the whole thing will fall apart, which, which I'll get into in a second. So along these lines, you have to be assertive. You, you got to be a leader. You're, you know, you're a kindergarten teacher trying to keep everyone's attention. You're wrangling a lot. You're noticing stuff. You're intervening before things get out of control. You have, depending on the style of group and where you are, you know, if you're in a process group that's going really well and it's three years down the line and these guys have been together forever, you probably don't need to walk in with a ton of control. But if this is week three of a domestic violence perpetrator group, you know, or teenagers and stuff, you know, you you have to be a charismatic, central, controlling figure of the dynamic. Now, it doesn't mean you have to, like, oppress or anything, but it means that you're the sort of person – you know, I, I just always think of a kindergarten teacher. When you watch kindergarten teachers, they know how to wrangle 30 kids, and they do so nicely, and, and they keep people's attention, and they keep – and they notice stuff happening – but they don't just they don't just sit back and like you know wonder what's going to happen you know they have an agenda and they're they're taking control so that's that's another thing you likely will have to consider yeah structure and safety yeah or safety and structure is probably a better way to put it yeah you also have to be very ready for public criticism depending on the uh, population but uh, often in groups the population has issues and some of those issues might target you, yeah. which means, and you got to be ready for this. In my dissertation on difficult clinical moments, one of the participants talked about. Uh, I didn't know that was your dissertation topic. Yeah. Oh, fabulous! Seasoned therapist, seasoned psychotherapist experience of difficult clinical moments. So it was a phenomenal. Thanks for study. interviewing me for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I probably would have if I mean I definitely would have because I, uh, but you know for whatever reason I got enough. Um, other yahoos to to do it, um, and and one of them, uh, uh, a great therapist, he was talking about how his worst moment in his career was during a group therapy session in which a a member called him out and humiliated him, and he did he didn't know what to do, and this is 
you know, not extremely common, but common enough. And in my experience as a group therapist myself, I can tell you that it's common. You know, there's the sort of person who is referred to these groups is a factor. The fact that they're emboldened by others in the group is a factor. The fact that when you're in individual therapy and one person decides to berate you, it it's a there's a lot less at stake. There's a lot less embarrassment. Um, whereas if you have twelve people in the room and one person decides to berate you and and you know you don't and you're losing control of the situation, it it can be very. So you have to have a plan now. The plan is not how to oppress people's, you know, feedback to you. The plan is is how to not have shame and not fall apart inter- internally and how to have a plan because that's usually all it takes is like okay, if if one of the group members says fuck you, I'm not going to do that. What is what is your plan? What's your response? Many group therapists in my experience have no answer to that question. They're just like uh oh, they're not going to do that, are they? And I'm like well, hopefully they won't, but what if they do? You know, you need a plan. You, that, that's kindergarten teacher stuff. Kindergarten teachers, they got plans for that shit. You know, kindergarten teachers, when the kid has a meltdown, they, you know, kindergarten teachers aren't like, uh, what do I, you know, it's just like you, 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 you do something. You know, you, you, it's not a wonderful experience, but you have a plan. You're a professional, you know what I mean? And uh, so have a plan be re- and be ready for that kind of event because it will likely happen at some mm. point. You also need to work well with a co-therapist, which is a whole set of skills. How do you work with your co-therapist? What skills have you developed over the years? It depends. Uh, um, some more active than others. Though, you know, when I'm teaching class, I'm kind of like, I talk a lot. Yeah. Because it's a curriculum and I'm teaching that. And so it's less on process, though. They do say in DBT skills classes, uh, the co-leader's job is really to monitor the process of the class and to be able to reflect on it. So that, like, for instance, if everybody's bored or if the room gets really stuffy and hot, I don't notice these things so easily because I'm kind of busy. Part of my brain is busy with something else. So their job is to say, to speak for the class. Right. So you need to know how to work well with a co-therapist. You also need to understand how systems work and intervene if necessary. You can't treat a group like a set of individuals. You have to treat a group as a system. that Everybody you, is watching. Right. And, and you're a part of it. Yeah. And every member has a relationship with everyone else. And so it's, and everyone has a relationship with other people's relationships. And so it's this very intertwining web of causality and of attention and of attachment and of emotion and of reactivity that you have to pay attention to. You can't think of everyone individually in group therapy. If you're teaching a class, you know, it's not really so much that way, but if you're teaching my kind of class, you kind of have to do both. Really? Why? Uh, Because everybody's watching. Everybody's uh, seeing what you do and what I, what I do with any one member is any any other member, everybody is the recipient of any intervention I do. So if I mistreat a member, I've mistreated all of them. And I've also created a room that's not safe. Right. Now, one of my vulnerabilities is when I get anxious, I can be dismissive. Interesting. So I get anxious about something that's going on in class or there's a direction I want to go and the class is going some other way. I have a way of interrupting that is dismissive and um, not experienced well. 
And I, boy, I remember once I had a class and I did that to one of the members and they got really pissed off at me. The entire room was pissed off at me. It was very uncomfortable. And one of the dubious benefits of working in that particular clinic is they videotaped everything. So I got to go to work before class and watch that video of my fuck up. And it was definitely a fuck up. It's one I couldn't see in the moment. I was really blind to it. But when I, I could see, obviously, and what I made myself do was just watch it over and over and over and over again as a way to kind of act opposite to my own shame. Right. And every time that we would get to the, I would get to the hard part, I, w- I would drop my head. I'm like, no, Bob, lift your head, lift your head, lift your head. So anyway, so what I you did. You stuck your nose in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, so I watched that tape for a half an hour, just this two-minute section for a half an hour. And then I went to my class and I said to them, you're right. I have this vulnerability. I do this thing and it would be great if you guys could help me because I'll probably do it again and I don't want it to hurt you. And so can you help me? And uh, my willingness to take responsibility for my fuck up and to show remorse for it um, and uh, to validate their experience of me saved that class. It's awesome. Yeah. Love, love that story. Yeah. Listeners to this podcast will know and maybe you too, Bob, that one of my favorite things to do in professional life and in my personal life is to apologize for my fuck-ups. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's one of my favorite activities. I I think I got it from my my dad. My dad likes to do this, too. Um, and he modeled it for me, I think, growing up. And as a therapist, I it feels so good when I just... I think, and really this is universal to any of my professional endeavors and maybe just in life in general, but like whether it's with a client or with a student or with a coworker or with someone in my family or a friend or something, I'll do something stupid, which everyone does. You make a mistake, you're in a bad mood, you say the wrong thing, you have a bias that shows through, you're not paying attention to someone's feelings. You made you made a mistake you didn't mean to. You know what I mean? No one sets out or very few people set out to like bother other human beings. You know, you you make a mistake and then I the my first reaction is to defend, right? It's just like, well, I did that because and this is bullshit and I, I kind of picked up on some tension. Well, you know, they need to learn or but you know, you have all these justifications. Oh yeah. When I'm in that state, I am not happy. Like there's nothing about that state that is that is joyful or relaxed or good. It just it feels shitty, you know. It's just like I'm in this state of shame and worry and defensiveness and hostility and and distance and I'm pessimistic. I'm like, well, this is probably going to happen again because people are stupid and you know, I da da da. da. You know, there's, there's just a lot of there's nothing good about that state. It doesn't feel good to me. As soon as my mind is ready, which could take some time, as soon as my mind makes that shift or my heart or whatever, and I'm just like, oh, I made a mistake. <laughs> or you know, it might even just be as simple as me saying like, part of that was due to me. And I can now see it for what it is. And I am now committed to apologizing at the next possible moment. Sometimes that means I immediately email or text or call or reach out and just say, I'm sorry for this that I did. And I don't qualify it with because you da-da-da. I'm just like, 
I just lay it all out there. Now, part of me might, might, depending on the situation, might be saying like, well, you were, you know, partially to blame too. But none of that comes into play in terms of my joy. And again, this is prior to me even expressing the apology. This is just me deciding I'm going to apologize. Mm. As soon as I do that, my brain and heart and soul switches from all that negativity and pessimism and justification and defensiveness and anger and hurt and shame and all that kind of, and worry about like my relationship with someone instantly switches to one of optimism, of freedom, of uh, um, hope, of uh, I'm looking forward to a experience where I do something that I know to be human, which is to make a mistake and apologize and will make the other person feel good. You know, I, imagine you have, you, you found someone's passport or something, you know, and you have the opportunity to give that to them. Like, that's what it feels like to me. I'm just like, my God, like, this is going to be awesome. I can't wait to do this, you know, and to have them look at me like, oh, you know, I mean, at the very least, they'll be like, okay, well, moving on. And then I can walk away going, well, you know, I, I did what I could, you know, yeah. I, I don't, there's, no, I don't feel shame about anything that happened. You know, I made an innocent mistake and I took responsibility for it. I, I walk away from that unscathed in my mind. Um, or they respond very positively and our relationship is even better than it was yeah. before. Right. So, yeah, this is one of my, and you're exhibiting that, you know, in this instance. Mm-hmm. I, I especially like the bit about you forcing yourself to watch the clip. I rarely have that courage, but when I do, um, it, it helps. In a sense, actually, this podcast makes me do that, which sure. I'll get into in a second after the break. Let's take a break. What do you say, Bob? Sure. Okay, we're back from the break. I was going to talk about how the podcast, in a sense, is sort of like what you did to yourself in terms of making yourself watch a mistake on video, which I just can't imagine how hard that must have been, particularly early career. Um, I the, the podcast actually does this, particularly because now I can uh, record a podcast without having to edit it very much, if at all. But for the first six, seven years of this podcast, I would listen back to every podcast probably like 30 times trying to make sure that everything flowed well and that everything was edited well and all this kind of stuff. Well, imagine listening to yourself talk 30 times. You are going to be exposing yourself to every stupid thing you do, every every quirk, every dumb thing you say, every attitude weirdness you have, every, you know, and by necessity, I had to do that. I just couldn't. And there are moments where I'm like, what am I doing here? And over time, I now just have learned to avoid those things and also don't have shame around it either anymore. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. Yeah. Anyway, so other things to consider before going into group therapy is you need to understand how some groups are marginalized, particularly in group formats. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you have a uh, you know, LGBT person in your group. I you, do have. I have one now. Yeah, you have a, a person of color in your group. You have a oh. woman in your group. Right. These are traditionally marginalized groups of people, and that cultural pattern will emerge likely in the group, or will affect the dynamic somehow. In all likelihood, you have to consider your own privilege and your own place in society with regards to that. Mm. Did you want to talk about an example or 
something happened to me recently yeah where one of the people in my uh class is a trans person yeah and he was in the room right before class with two other men and me and most of the time in that class the, the majority of the time um, my students are women so i made a remark i said it's rare that it's just the boys in the room and he said to me during class that he did not like being compared to cis men and i had no idea but after he talked to me i'm like of course yeah. of course that makes complete sense but you know i'm a straight white guy i have blind spots yeah one thing i'm i'm similar to you one thing i'm comfortable with even though i have tremendous shame is uh acknowledging that i'm blind yeah i think that that's uh practical and also just mm, healthy yeah especially in an instance like that because you didn't say that with the effort or you had no hostility. No. You had no... Uh, in fact, you might have been thinking you were actually acknowledging I was. this person's identity by not saying, oh, it's rare that we have one trans and two, two cisgender men in the class. <laughs> you know, um, you, know you, you, you probably thought, I'm going to acknowledge this person's identity by, by saying this. Sure. You know? But this, this person... You know, things are complicated and yes. not everything falls into no. that uh, binary right. world. Right. And so, um, so yeah. Right. So there's those, those kinds of interactions. And then more complicatedly, there are situations in which you could be in a long-term group with a group of people. And then six months down the line, you might realize, you know, that that woman or that gay man or whoever – I'm not hearing a lot from that person anymore. They seem to be kind of uh, becoming invisible. And I might even be participating in that. And what do I need to do about that? So, um, and then obviously interactions between people, men are socialized to be assertive and aggressive and, you know, know it all and mansplain. And so, you know, those kinds of issues will, will, you know, rear their ugly heads in group therapy. It, the, the, depending on the context, in all likelihood, it doesn't involve you saying, hey, you're mansplaining, but it could mean um, just paying attention to it and just putting that onto your radar and not acting like those things don't exist. Um, also, as you were saying, Bob, you need to screen people. Not everyone is uh, you know, appropriate for group therapy, depending on the situation. And you, you just need to uh, – whereas with individual therapy – Screening is also important, but you could probably get them in and then over time say like, oh, maybe this isn't good for you. You know, let me, let's talk about that. Whereas if, if you let someone into a group that's not been properly screened, they can ruin things for weeks and people could drop out and da, da, da. So you just need to be careful. Folks that are, have incompatibilities could destroy a group. Right. Yeah. If you're in private practice and you're starting a group, you need to know how to market your group. Yeah. And this is something I talk a lot about with my postgrads, my supervisees, is occasionally I'll have a supervisee who will who will say, "I want to start a group," you know, I want to, and I'll be like, "Great, let me tell you what is required here," because in my experience, just saying that is like point zero 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 one percent of what is required, and often all that anyone ever does. Frankly, mm. you have to market. It's it's as you're selling a completely different service than psychotherapy. It shouldn't be a different service. It should just be like a shade off of 
what we do normally. Uh, meaning that a client could come to you and say, I have a problem with this. And you'd be like, well, I got individual or group, you know, both would be good. What do you want to do? And people would choose, you know, sort of balanced in that way. But in the world of the consumer world, they consider group therapy to be a completely different service. And no, or hardly anyone thinks, oh, I should go to group therapy for that. Mainly it's therapists who want to do that. Um, and people sort of in the know or something. But the vast majority of people, well, the vast majority of people don't go to therapy anyway because they consider it for crazy people, quote unquote. But of the percentage of people who go to therapy, they consider individual therapy to be uh, what they're interested in or what the possibilities are. And so you have your your job is to, to some extent, educate a certain group of people about what the, you know, what group therapy is and, and how it can benefit them. And, and to the point where you get, you know, if you take a thousand people in a room and you manage to expose them to that information, you know, your uh, some ad or something that you do, two of them will actually call you. And then of those two people, like half of one will actually end up in group therapy. And so you have to throw a wide fucking net. That's what I tell people because people, it's novice, you know, clinicians, when they, when they when I talk with them about this, they're like, "Well, I'll you know I'll make a flyer, and I'll pass it around to my friends and family." And I'm sure you know it, you know if if everyone refers me someone, you know I, I, that's ten people. And I'm like, that, "That ain't how the world works. You cannot throw a net to your friends and family and expect to get something like off the ground. You have to you have to get either into a very specific flow of of clients like." Like for instance, your DBT. You know, if you if a friend came to you and said, "I'm starting a DBT process group," for instance, and I think it would be a great adjunct to your group, and somehow this person sells it to you, and and you are confident in their model, and you're friends with them, so you're interested in actually helping them with their career, then you could actually, if you wanted to, Bob, you could make someone's, you know, group actually flourish because if you just got, you know, 10% of the people that came your way to go to this group, then this clinician would probably have enough people to, you know, sustain financially a group. Um, the other thing is that if you, if, if the, de if the demand is kind of there, it sucks because if you only have one or two people coming to your group, it's it's humiliating. It's a waste of time. You might as well just be doing individual therapy. And so you've got to cast such a wide net that you're that you're not only getting ten people to come, but you're getting uh, enough people that show up every week because you know people are sick or they're busy or something. So you have to have a pretty again if it's a process group that's voluntary and all this stuff. Anyway, the point is is that it. If you want to start your own group private practice, you, you got to market and you got to figure that out. And that's that's pretty complicated. So that's something you have to think about. Completely doable. You just have to be willing to put in the work. Yeah. Right. And it takes time. Yeah. And it's complicated. And you got to network and you got to talk and yeah. you got to, you got to, you got to set up, make a campaign. You can't just print a flyer and post it on a bulletin board like I've seen some people do. Um, Having said all that, as we've talked about before, groups can be extremely gratifying professionally, personally, uh, from the perspective of the therapist. They can be extremely moving experiences. As you said, Bob, they can accelerate things very quickly, which can feel very good as a, as a therapist. And 
they are very dynamic and the time flies by and group group therapy can be quite fun and can make you feel like you're in the flow of your career. You know, you're just like, yep, that was awesome. I'm glad I chose this career. So let's talk about some personal experiences. I will uh, uh, share a, a few of mine. Bob, please sure. chime. Maybe we can go back and forth. So if you, could th- if, we, if you haven't already shared some stories. But the first, I think the first group I actually had was at a middle school and it was for kids. I, I, I don't remember the exact uh, situation, but from my memory, the kids were referred because they were getting in trouble. So it could be anything. It could be like being defiant in class or getting bad grades or smoking weed or, you know, it could just be anything. And so it was, this, it was like 12 middle school kids, middle school. So these are some of the most obnoxious people on the planet and some of the most um, immature, you know, that when you're seven, you're immature, right? When you're 12, you're both immature and highly motivated to interact or assert your immaturity, I guess is a phrase I might use. 12-year-olds are lovely human beings. I was once a 12-year-old. I have many 12-year-old friends. Just joking. Um, But anyone who works with, well, let me put it this way. You take the 12 worst, most annoying to teachers uh, kids at one school and you put them in a room with me, that's at the beginning of my career, that was a disaster. <laughs> so uh, it was in the library. We had no confidentiality. People walked in and out. That was wonderful. Mm. And I, at the time, had this philosophy about teenagers as a family therapist, which was, I'm not their dad. I'm not their teacher. I'm not their boss. I'm I'm a therapist, which is really something different. You know, we're um, we can joke around, we can swear, we can, you know, I, I don't, I, I, there's no rules. I don't have any rules. Why would I? So when I approached this group, uh, I was, I had that approach and within four or five weeks, I had no control that the, the 12 year olds were completely out of control. I think in the first couple of weeks, they, they were like, what is this? And then I was like trying to talk about things. And I, my philosophy was I need to make them feel safe and I need to make them feel like I'm not a teacher and they're not going to get in trouble. They're here. They can talk about whatever they want to with the thing in my mind, which had worked in family therapy, which was, if I establish that, then eventually we'll actually get to some good stuff. Well, in a group therapy format, what that ended up resulting in is over time, the kids were like, Oh, I get it. This guy has no rules. We can do whatever we want. And I can show off in all the ways that I want that I've wanted to in my life by telling the you know therapist to fuck off, by walking around the library, by you know making crude jokes, but you know by doing whatever I want. And that's what happened. And I started dreading going to this group. I was just like, this is you know, I would in my mind I would be like I would have this impulse to like get you know tell tell them to knock it off and I'd be like well that's not what a therapist does you know like a therapist is this nice you know accepting well it got to this point where it was so aggravating to me and so frustrating that I just fucking exploded I was like I just I can't remember what I did but I remember it was some sort of involuntary explosion you know it was something like 
knock it off or you know or just like <laughs> you pieces of shit will you shut up you know like some kind of i probably wouldn't have said that but it was something very abrupt and the kids and i as i was doing it i was like oh my god what am i doing you know but it had this very strange effect the kids instantly started to participate meaningfully in group therapy not like extremely but kind of and it so by me screaming it had the direct opposite effect of what that sort of thing i thought would which was it actually provided that structure that you know it wasn't a safe structure yet but it was some structure and it was then that i realized that 12 year olds and later i would realize that everyone in a group format they there needs to be someone that provides structure someone that provides a a a roadmap it could be very loose but there needs to be some roadmap otherwise chaos ensues and lord of the flies happens you know um what do you think about that moment bob tough moment i mean great moment uh, I would have dreaded going to, and I'm glad I don't work with 12-year-olds. <laughs> yeah. yeah it, it, I also learned in that a very important lesson that, I, that has helped me to coach parents after that, which is that our adult notions of what kids need are not necessarily what kids need. Our, you know, my adult notion of what kids needed was a, an open environment an accepting environment one that valued their you know their freedom and da 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 and what i learned in that moment and subsequent moments is that people and kids in particular they actually need some of that structure they need some of that fencing <laughs> because if you don't provide that because they have difficulty with impulse control and their own emotional regulation and their own maturity and their own decision making they can actually end up without external uh, guidance, make mistakes that they end up regretting and then harming relationships around them to the, not every kid. Some kids I've seen four year olds that are supreme diplomats, you know, that are better than Trump um, depending on their upbringing. You know what I mean? But, but in general, particularly kids that come to a group like this, but anyway, um, also, early in my career, I had a group of Native American. It was a group home for Native Americans, uh, teenagers in Ballard. When was this? This was. Um, this would have been my volunteer work that I did to get the hundred hours of experience that we needed. Remember that? Remember that requirement that we needed to get into grad school? Oh yeah, yeah. So, yes. so there's a consortium organization in. Uh, Seattle of of different Native American mental health services and this and this was a group home in Ballard. It doesn't exist anymore, but I don't think. But I worked there as a as a counselor ish sort of person, and we valued their culture. Um, I didn't decide this group format, but it had been decided long ago before I was there. But the kids seemed to really take to it. We would go into a room. And we would tape up the windows and we'd turn off the lights. It'd be pitch black. And we would pass around a sage that was smoldering. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you'd get that sage mm-hmm. incense smell. And there you would there was like a cleansing process. And then you 
it was almost like confessing your sins in some way with like Catholics. And it was very moving. It was very, you know, uh, and that was group therapy led by the therapist. And I was, you know, just kind of there. Um, another experience I'll, I'll mention is this is a, a early career. Again, this is a high school group. Again, all the worst kids of the school, the kids who were getting in trouble all the time. And in this group, similar experience, but because I had learned from the middle school group, I decided I'm going to have structure. I'm going to take control. Well, that didn't work. They didn't let me take control. They didn't let me, particularly this, these two girls, they were African-American girls and they were not going to let me win. And it was very frustrating. You think part of that was your cultural difference or your ethnic difference? It couldn't have not been at least part of factor. Um, Hard to know. Yeah, well, right. Uh, But they, uh, I mean, looking back, and maybe at the time, I probably surmised that for them to be safe in the world, they needed to do that in their lives, right? In order to uh, uh, protect themselves, they decided a long time ago that they're never going to let anybody take control of their context. And so you know, they were determined and that's why they got into the group in the first place is because they were, you know, oppositional to teachers and stuff. And so instead of exploding <laughs> in this moment, I decided to experiment. And what I did was I, I turned to the two girls and I said, I said as diplomatically as I possibly could, I said, I I'm getting the impression you don't like authority and you don't like it when other people are in control. It, it, I, that's just how I'm you know feeling about this, which is totally cool with me. Cause you know, what do I care? You know? And, and frankly, I don't know how comfortable I am being an authority in this situation. Cause I'm, you know, not that much older than you guys, even though you think I'm ancient, but you know, I was probably 26 at the time or something. And I said, um, I said, so today I'm being totally honest. I I would wish that the two of you would actually lead the group. Now, I took this leap, and I, and I and I was like, this could be disastrous. I could even get in trouble for this. And and it went wonderfully. The girl, particularly one girl, her demeanor shifted so fast. It was the weirdest thing. She instantly became this mature, thoughtful, therapeutic leader and everyone watched everyone because she was like kind of the cool bully of the school you know and people looked up to her you could tell and she was the real leader of the class anyway and when you look when you really think about it and so for the next number of weeks we just i would enter the class and i would say okay you know so and so what would you like to do today and she would actually like lay out you know and she would lead discussions and she would kind of have an agenda and and then eventually she started actually kind of looking to me for guidance sometimes. And I'd be like, and, and then I eventually I was just like, you should be a therapist, you know? Um, and so uh, that's another experience that was very poignant to me. Mm-hmm. Um, as I talked about earlier, I, I was in a group of DV perpetrators. I've talked about this on the podcast before. You haven't talked to me about it. Uh, it was at my agency job and they, thought it would be good to have a mental health professional in with, because the DV, the person who led the DV group was not a mental health professional. They were some sort of DV specialist. Uh, you know, I think they had education like specifically in DV or something. At, at any rate, it was, it was decided that they needed a, 
a mental health person in the room. And so I joined, which was great because I didn't have to lead and I could just sort of sit there and chime in when I wanted to. And that was an amazing experience. I instantly realized that DV perpetrators in general are regular people and not the monsters I thought they were. Some of them were monsters, incidentally, psychopathic monsters. Rarely, though. Most of them had trauma of their own. They were obviously socialized as men because they were all men to be in control and to use their physicality and to uh, manage emotional pain and distance and anxiety through physical means. And it was the, the thing I learned in this group, because it was all men in their like 20s to 50s kind of thing, was it was a mandated court mandated group that, you know, you, you got a char, a convicted of assault for you go to this, you know, that's the main uh, con, you know, sentence is a DV group. And the, the people would enter at various times. And so at any given time, and they would be there for a year. So at any given time, you had people in early stage, mid stage, late stage, and the late stage guys were always the best therapists in the room. The group had a culture in which the late stage guys would, would confront, they would do the main confronting. And some of it was a bit jagged, but, but often it wasn't. It was very caring and on point and helpful. And these, and, and I would go, oh, so these early stage guys are eventually going to look like these guys. That's interesting, you know, just to see that progression in the same room, I guess. Um, and to realize the complexity of, emotional attachment and violence and socialization and trauma and the legal system and gender and culture. I mean, it's just interesting how it all, you know, comes together to create this occasional behavior in somebody. Um, And frankly, a lot of them had borderline traits, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they'd get, they'd get, they'd feel abandoned, they'd be overwhelmed and they would panic essentially and, and lash out. Um, so, so there was that experience. Um, I've been involved in dual diagnosis groups, as you have been also, which is, you know, for chemical dependency people. Um, I've been involved in, I've led anger management groups. Oh, I didn't know that either. Yeah, back in the day, I was sort of like the anger manager. So what would happen was either someone, when they were convicted of assault for they would either be at a level that the judge determined that they had to go to DV group, which is pretty intense. Or they said, well, you're not that bad, so you just have to go to anger management, which is a kind of a low-grade, very, very distant second to DV perpetrator groups. And so I would lead that. But one time I remember I was leading this group of teens in an anger management group. And I was uh, at the agency, and the it was in a house. So the security was non-existent and the back door was just sitting right there in the group room and this boy walked into the group in the middle of the group and i'm like what's up with this kid and then this girl in the group's like oh hey and that they knew each other and then before i could do anything they were out the back door and they were just gone and this is one of those difficult moments that you have to be prepared for as a group leader because in individual therapy if your client leaves you can you have time to be like oh well because you don't, you're not. I was still responsible for this group, you know. And it's like, well, what do I do? And I didn't know what to do. 
and a lot ran through my head within a split second. And I decided to deal with it after the group. So I'm like, well, I'm not going to chase after her and I can't call the cops now. And, and is that breaking confidence? I mean, she's an adult. I mean, she's not an adult, but she's above 13 and doesn't she have rights to, you know, do what she, I don't know. Like, so I ended up calling the parents after the meeting and they were like, Oh yeah, she does that all the time. No big deal. So it wasn't a big deal. And she got home fine. It was just, you know, blah, blah. But after that, we're like, you know, lock that door. But, um, my co-therapist was an intern and she was so distressed by this. I'm not actually describing how distressful this moment was because it was just like, it's almost, it had, it felt like a kidnapping in some ways and it felt like, it just felt very dangerous. You know, it's like, well, what does this mean? Are we in charge? And, you know, is, are we, what, what if she gets hurt? Is it, are, you know, we're liable for that, aren't we? And so her and I, because we had no guidance because it was late at night and our supervisors were gone. And so the uh, other co-therapist was so distraught about this that she ended up quitting the internship. Uh, I think maybe she had other complaints or something, right? This is the, you know, and, and then later I heard that she dropped out of the profession altogether. Wow. And I, I don't know how much of this event had to do with that, but... Piece of the pie. But it's just another thing to think about, another reason why before you enter group therapy, you've got to have a protocol for yeah. what might be rare situations, but could happen, right? You know? I'm reminded of two in particular. Like what? Well, my very first DBT skills class agency job, I was forced into that. I did not want to be a DBT skills trainer, um, uh, but for reasons that had to do with the agency, I was forced into it. So, okay, so fine. This is what I do every week for two and a half hours. And uh, these are... And then you grew to like it. Yeah, 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 that came later. Um, anyways, um, we had a client self-harm during class. During class? Yeah, so we take a break halfway through. She goes into the bathroom. Oh, cuts, in the bathroom. And she comes out and is standing in the group room with this intense look on her face. Like, I thought she was pissed off. And she's looking right at me, and I thought she was pissed off. And somebody else says, she's bleeding. And I look down, and her arms are dripping blood oh. on the carpet in front of all these other people who have non-suicidal self-injury impulses and suicide, suicidal thoughts and impulses and sometimes actions and so forth. And she's bleeding on our carpet. Oh, my God. Right? And it was one other person's first day in class, and she's watching this, right? So we did, we did uh, something smart as we removed everybody from that room and met in a different room. We had another room, fortunately. And we did something that um, would not be typical for a DBT skills class, which is we processed what was seen. And I don't think there's any getting any out of it. Yeah. If, it'd be like ignoring the elephant. Did you room. make that call? Yeah. Wow, that's smart. Yeah, it was. Well, it was what'd you do with the person who was bleeding? Called 911. Oh, yeah, no, that was a whole process. That took a month. We called 911, obviously, to get her medical treatment. It was She was pretty severely injured um and she could not join she could not she could not quit but she could not rejoin the class without both an apology and a commitment to never let that happen again in writing that she delivered to the class okay and she was willing to do this um 
Was this like an aggressive act of some kind? No, no, no. This is a person who she dissociated. was suffering. She was really suffering. She dissociated. She did this thing. The intense look on her face. She she doesn't remember it at all. She was completely checked out. I just misread it. So no, this was a person who's just in tremendous pain. Who acted? Were in you this afraid way. of this person? I mean, I in would, that moment, yeah, terrified. <laughs> I'd be afraid of this person after that. I mean, if they're capable of, I mean. Empirically, they're not a threat, but no. but the but emotionally, it's but like, emotionally, you're like so you you have a you know a cutting device that right. you're willing to use right. on yourself, and you're just staring intently at, at me. me. Uh, that'd be terrifying. Yeah, it was. It was terrifying. And you know, since then, it's the thing I would say is it's really, really, and I would say it in this kind of tone, it's really tacky for you to come to my class. And do self-harm when everybody else here is trying to cut that out. And I've had actually that happen twice more in the course of 20 years where one of my students self-injured during class. And I just say, that's really tacky. You can't in the bathroom? That. Yeah. You just call oh, it tacky. Under the, under the table. Oh, under the table. Yeah, she didn't cut, but she did She did something else that was self-injurious. And, you know, we, we're very specific. You cannot talk about that behavior in class. You can't engage in it, of course. You can say that you had an urge to do a, they can call it generally a target behavior. Um, or uh, or they, they did a target behavior, not in class. Um, you can say that in a general way because we're really focused on well, what are you doing about that, not so much what are you doing because nobody needs to know that it's contagious, et cetera. So um, uh, the next time that did happen was many, many years later. I said to my student, you can't do that here. You just can't. Yeah. Like, And I was firm, like, you will not do that in my room right. to my students. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's sort of like this balance between – Having compassion for she's clearly suffering, yeah, and needing to protect seven other people. Well, it's interesting because as a almost strategic therapy move, it's framing it framing it as tacky and having a rule around it. Sort of, it, I wonder if it if it takes the power out of it in some way. It's like, don't be tacky. Yeah, you know, we all know right. that people, you know, self injure. Uh, don't embarrass yourself and, yeah. you know, don't, don't be gauche. <laughs> yeah. It, it has that feel. And we yeah. have an overt rule that you, you can't, can't do that. We talk about it regularly yeah. that this is just not allowed because my membership is always changing as people yeah. graduate, new people join. And then um, if we're getting on, I mean, something you said got me on, you know, horror moments. I had a client kill herself. Wow. Uh, I was actually with my client um, and she was also a student in my class and I didn't know what to do. So I had a really good uh, association with some very good DBT people. And one of them said to me, you have to process it, of course. And here's an idea about how you might process it. And so what I suggested to the class, we told them we were direct and upfront because, you know, to not be would be A, impossible and B, just disrespectful. Well, I mean, you could possibly try to, you know... Say, well, we haven't heard from her. Maybe she moved, or you know, you right. could. And they probably wouldn't, unless they looked in the paper or something. So, um, but you yeah. decided to be honest about honest it, about which it. is, I think, a good call. And so we invited them uh, to spend fifteen minutes the next week in saying or doing whatever they needed to do to process that for themselves. And then I said very explicitly, it would be a dishonor to her to not continue on with what we're here about not yeah. to keep going with our curriculum and they were all uh highly respectful solemn of course and um we kept going amazing yeah yeah so 
she died in between weekly sessions or had it been a while? No, she died. She was there one week and then gone. Wow. Yeah. Because I know you had another client that had died, but you hadn't seen her in a while. Um, Right? Wasn't that you? That something like that did happen to me, but uh, that person's death was accidental. Oh, so it might be you're thinking of somebody else, maybe or, yeah. But anyway, okay. So come into group, and then next couple of days, yeah. boom. So and so well, normally said, in your class you would not have a processing no, element, but no. because of the nature of this, you thought you, it w- uh, would be harmful not to, not and to. maybe beneficial to do that. But it's as you said earlier, you have to have a plan. You have to know what you're going to do. So as horrifying as that is and as, you know, scary and upsetting it is, it is, I actually am prepared at all times for that possibility. I'll know what, I know what to do and it'll probably never happen again. But if it does, you, you're, you you have a protocol. Yeah. It it doesn't necessarily eliminate the grief for you and everyone else, but, but you're not professionally caught off guard from yeah. something that we could predict might happen at some point in one's right. career. Yeah. I don't get I get caught off guard occasionally and occasionally my own countertransference stuff comes up in class. But I'm pretty good at um, managing uh folks who are angry with me. Yeah. Um and generally my response is similar to yours, uh where I simply just take responsibility. Yeah. And um admit admit you know whatever part i play in the thing and uh tend to be humble a bit humor light about it if i can be and um you know on we go a genuine yeah you've always been that way since i met you 20 some odd years ago 22 years you were always the consummate example of a therapist (laughs) oh thank you i was not i was just a a 24-year-old boob and <laughs> what looked to you and Gary and everyone else in class and was like, how do you guys already know? You guys don't even need graduate school. I remember oh. looking around. And um, <laughs> I, I talk about this sometimes, but we had we had a, a talk in one class, in our ProSem class, about empathy. And I remember right. everyone was going around the room talking. It was like a six-person class. We're all talking about what empathy means to us. And I remember being like, "How come everyone always? How come everyone already knows the answer to this question? I empathy? What's that? You know, like." <laughs> and uh, yeah, I I was definitely out of my element, Donnie, in in graduate school. And when uh, I graduated, I I felt I felt like I had tricked everyone into something. Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so you've always been a good example to me on that. And Thank you. I think you also just have a general understanding of what therapy is and what your kind of place is in the role of therapy. You're not, you're not confused about the big picture, I guess, you know, cause that's often what you need to have is a firm grasp on, well, what's the big picture here? So in that instance, when you have someone who is staring at you bleeding, mm. If you just look at it in a micro way, you, you, you know, you can, you can be like, okay, I have someone who is clearly, you know, I don't know, just being unsafe and uh, there's blood and, um, you know, I could see someone panicking or, or just being frozen. But you, you, you're the big picture, uh, I presume, is, well, I, I have a responsibility to the rest of the group here. This, this, this event doesn't necessitate complete breakdown of our 
what we were here to do anyway. So how can I facilitate? Oh, get a different room. Um, this person is presenting a symptom that all of them, many of them have exhibited and I'm just seeing it, you know, and I'm not going to freak out about it. It's, it's, it's a part of what they do. And I saw the blood that, that all, many of these people have seen just in the bathroom by themselves, you know? And so, but legally and ethically speaking, I should probably call, you know, the ambulance. Oh, sure. Because, there's blood and I don't know how severe it is and I'm not going to get involved in that. And so let's just leave it up to nine one one to kind of figure that out. Yeah. Um, and you, you know, you're breaking confidentiality in that moment. You're, you're calling the, um, nine one one and you're releasing patient health information at that right. point. And that's a, that's a step that you had to contemplate prior to making that call Sure. and, uh, deemed it necessary Yeah. and could easily justify that. Sure. If, a complaint was, you know, made against you. It's like there was blood dripping from her. Uh, I I thought her safety was more important than than upholding confidentiality. So, yeah. So I I expect you, Bob, to be that great. So um, the the last group that I'll talk about that we've talked about on the podcast before is a Dungeons and Dragons social skills group, which. Some people would consider to be clinical and some people wouldn't. I've never heard of that. Yeah. Uh, some graduates from Antioch that I'm involved with actually uh, professionally, Adam Johns, Adam Davis, are becoming quite famous for their Dungeons & Dragons skills group. I can totally see it. So, yeah. Kids love to go to the group. They uh, you know, can't wait to go. And the group is highly therapeutic. So because Dungeons & Dragons is a is a highly social endeavor yeah. and, and your reward or, and it said if the dungeon master sets it up, right, it rewards pro-social behavior and, and, and communication and, you know, oh, right. And so, um, so anyway, so those are different, you know, groups, uh, any final thoughts on group therapy, Bob? Uh, yeah. One final thought. My students are, you know, I've been teaching the same thing for 20 years. And my students are still better teachers than me. I've taught these kind of skills one-on-one, as I said earlier, and it's dull and boring and it's not terribly effective. But one of the things about doing that in a group format is that there's a new person joining and there's somebody across the table who's got the same struggles, who talks about uh, how they responded, how they used a skill in my case, or um, you know, did something effective or useful under difficult circumstance. And they model for the other person and really everybody else in the room, me included, um, effectiveness. And that's much stronger than somebody with a license and a degree and some initials saying, this is a good skill. You should use it. But yeah. my students, uh, they they teach me. They teach each other. Uh, they honor us with their willingness. Right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Uh, seek group therapy if you want. I, uh, if if there was more demand, there'd be more of them out there. I I think more people should be involved in it uh, because of the various reasons we've talked about. And please take care of yourself because you deserve it. <laughs> <laughs>